Welcome to the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast, where every two weeks we explore all the aspects of the weight loss surgery journey. We'll hear from a range of experts, including bariatric surgeons, psychologists, patients, and dietitians, sharing up-to-date, informative advice to help fast-track your long-term weight loss success. Here I am in the office of Aaron Deer, Dr. Aaron Deer, at Melbourne Gastro Surgery in Melbourne. I'm visiting today just to discuss and explore bariatric surgery and to find out a little bit more about the different types of surgery and Aaron's experience with the surgeries as well. So without further ado, I'll introduce Dr. Aaron Deer. Aaron, can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we start? Sure. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks for the opportunity and lovely to talk to you. Well, look, it's been a journey of over two and a half decades now. Seems like a long time ago, but I think when I was in med school, there was little that was offered in terms of a, uh, you know, a solution to tackle obesity because it wasn't so much of an issue at that point in time. However, we have seen that, uh, you know, as technology has advanced and our society has changed as a as a whole, with the advent of more convenient foods and lifestyle changes, mm-hmm. uh, we have been seeing uh, this, uh, you know, scourge of obesity not only come up in developed nations, but it's the developing nations which are facing the brunt significantly. Now, I often say this to patients that yes, surgery is a powerful tool, but surgery does not have the ability to fix the world's obesity problem. Mm, exactly. So we need to acknowledge that, uh, but then we need to use the lessons learned and try and get out of the situation that we are in currently. And hence my message is that we have to have an integrative and a holistic approach to managing obesity rather than just one tool and that fixes everything. Exactly. So we'll discuss that in later episodes as well, which will be very interesting. Sure. Thanks, Aaron. Um, so firstly, I just wondered if you can tell us a little bit about the different surgeries. What types of surgeries on offer for a weight loss surgery patient? Yeah. Look, in, in, in the current day's context, uh, surgery, of course, as we know, has evolved as we have understood what works, what doesn't work, and new new insights have been gained over the period of you know, few decades since bariatric surgery has been done. And I'm talking about surgery, which started in the 1950s to 60s with jejuno ileal bypasses, which were like fairly morbid operations. To now we have understood that procedures like artificial prosthetics, such as, you know, lab bands, they may be working only for a very select population Mm -hmm. and they are high maintenance and they create a unique set of issues. So that is something that has come out of the understanding of how this works over the course of last few decades. So currently what I offer in my practice as the the number one procedure, which most of the people would prefer as a gastric sleeve, Mm -hmm. then we offer the two different kinds of gastric bypasses, the Ruin Y gastric bypass, and the one anastomosis or mini gastric bypass. There are newer procedures which are in the horizon, such as the SADI procedure, uh, then the endoscopic sleeve gastroplasty or sleeve gastrectomy, as some people like to call it, but it's not a gastrectomy. It is actually suturing or stitching the stomach into a long tube passing the endoscope in. Mm. So there are all these newer procedures, but I think they are still experimental. 
I don't think we have that degree of confidence that we can offer it with a good, safe, long-term safety profile. A lot of these surgeries been around for... Uh, the the new ones, the Sadi yeah, and this, yeah. well, they are all in in the five or under five year realm. So, so I don't know what happens at the ten year mark, you know. Right. And again, they each each operation has got a unique set of advantages mm-hmm. and disadvantages. And I think that you know my understanding over the years has come to this conclusion uh, that. Look, you do a procedure that you understand well, that you can guide your patients through well to understand what are the pros and cons of that procedure so that you use it to your best advantage. And that's why we feel comfortable with the ones that we offer currently. That's very interesting. Mm. And we're seeing an uprising in the bypass in some situations. Do you see a different result for patients as far as weight loss goes, maybe longevity of their weight loss? Is there a difference between the sleeve gastrectomy and the bypass as far as the results? Absolutely. And I think what we need to understand, Jackie, is, and this is being recognized internationally already in the sense that, you know, the organizations, the peak bodies that are, you know, uh, bodies that lay out guidelines for weight loss surgery have restructured and reframed their guidelines to address metabolic surgery. So metabolic surgery is now considered to be aimed for people who have got metabolic syndrome, such as diabetes, which is complications of obesity. Mm -hmm. So their BMI may not be that high, but they may still have issues like truncal obesity, fatty liver, high lipid levels, cholesterol levels, and high levels of insulin, Mm -hmm. which all represent insulin resistance or a metabolic syndrome, which is something that is the number one risk factor to developing strokes, cardiovascular conditions and all of that. So when it comes to, in answer to your question, when it comes to difference between the sleeve and the bypasses, bypasses clearly have a much powerful metabolic effect. So if I'm dealing with someone who's got diabetes, who's got severe sleep apnea, has got a fatty liver, my inclination would be to consider a bypass if it is safest procedure for that individual. And from a nutritional perspective, what are the implications when you compare the two surgeries, great the question. and the bypass? Yeah, great question. And it's very relevant because the thing is that, you know, you often get younger females on one spectrum, young moms who have gained so much weight and they are, their BMI is in 50s Mm. and they are struggling to get off the baby weight because they've had a few pregnancies and on the other extreme you have uh, slightly older men and women who have developed that truncal obesity which has led to issues around sleep apnea and things like that so uh, i think what i say in answer to your question is the unique challenge in younger women is sometimes nutritional deficiencies which can come up which is iron and vitamin d that Mm. we see quite often Protein also is something that is pertinent and it's very important to keep a track of the albumin. But that is something that we used to see when we were bypassing long segments of small bowel, which we don't do anymore. Well, at least, you know, there is an international consensus that over two meters of small bowel will lead to significant degrees of malabsorption and albumin, you know, levels drop and all those side effects start to come in. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, uh, there is a better understanding of that once again, and we don't see that as often, 
but it is rare. And it's time will tell, isn't it? Well, that's true, you know. Uh, and once again, there are other aspects of each operation. For example, a ruin Y gastric bypass, uh, you know, we, people develop stomal ulcers. There's a risk of internal herniation, which are unique to the ruin Y gastric bypass. And the one anastomosis or the mini gastric bypass can lead to some bile reflux. Right. So if an individual already has got reflux and they've got metabolic syndrome, then I tend to shy away from the mini bypass and we offer the ruin Y gastric bypass. So there's a selection algorithm that we go through with the patients based on their age, their risk profile, their BMI, and their other metabolic risk factors in order to come at what is the safest option for the individual. Absolutely. So yeah. safety first, of course. Absolutely. Safety and then matching it to the profile of the individual. Mm. And that's the key thing. Start with the, the sleeve gastrectomy. Can you tell us sure. a little bit about the way the anatomy is modified in that operation? Yeah. So basically the sleeve gastrectomy, as the name suggests, is that sleeve meaning you make a tube of the stomach. Right. Gastrectomy means you remove a portion of the stomach. So essentially what we are doing is that the, the basis of the operation is that the gastric fundus produces ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone. Yeah. And when you remove the fundus, fundus meaning the part of the stomach, which is the, the bag or the balloon part of the stomach, once that is removed, the individual's hunger drops significantly. You know, this has been proven by scientific studies and they prove that up to three years, there is a significant drop that is maintained in the ghrelin levels. Now, mind you, ghrelin is a hormone that we have understood and discovered to be associated with our hunger mechanisms, but that's not the only hormone. Mm. There are several other hormones which probably we haven't discovered as yet because it's a very complicated mechanism. Mm. Appetite and hunger control are very complex. So uh, that operation, basically, the beauty of the operation is that it allows the food to go down the food pipe, the stomach and the small bowel in a very natural way. The only difference or the advantage being that the portion control is a significant uh, benefit that individuals get. So people who may be eating healthy but are struggling with portion control, it's a great operation. BMI less than 45, uh, if that's what the individual profile says, again, I think sleeve is a good op option mm. because it allows the food to go down the natural passage, reducing the risk of developing nutritional deficiencies. Absolutely. And that's a great thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and as far yeah. as the bypass goes, what are the changes that you so, make there? So, yeah. So, with the bypass, as the name suggests, we bypass a portion of the small bowel, uh, which is the upper small bowel. And in the ruin Y, we make two joints, so a small pouch of stomach, and then we attach a segment of the small bowel to it. So, there are two limbs, basically, the biliary limb and the alimentary limb. Yeah. Most of the surgeons would make an alimentary limb of about a meter or so, which is about 100 to 110 centimeters. And most of the surgeons would have a biliary limb of about 75 centimeters, 65 to 75 centimeters. Now, there's no written rules about it, mm -hmm. but most of people, most of the surgeons would agree on that. Having said that, with the one anastomosis bypass, if the BMI of the individual is 50 or less, then we go for a bypass of about 150 centimeters of okay. small bowel. And but it's only one joint. When the when you're doing that with BMI, yeah. what what is that mechanism that you're um, utilizing there? So, great question. And there are two things that both these operations do. Number one, it 
changes the gut hormones. Mm -hmm. So that allows the recalibration or resetting of the metabolic or the thermogenic point, which means, you know, like your body has got a set resting metabolic rate. When a bypass operation is undertaken, it causes change in the gut-brain communication, and that resets the metabolism of the individual. So hunger goes down and metabolism goes up. This is a very interesting thing. Yeah. Absolutely. So it is not just a mechanical effect, you know, because the first bariatric operation just out of interest was wiring the jaws of the individual, you know, which is funny because, again, you know, it shows how much we understood uh, obesity. Uh, but that was clearly a failure. It never worked. So now we have understood that it is the nerve and the neuronal and the hormonal signals mm. that go from the gut to the brain that influence our hunger and appetite mechanisms. So I guess the umbrella of it is you're altering the hormonal responses, changing that um, gut-brain conversation in a lot of ways, exactly. as well as limiting the portions in both of the surgeries. Absolutely. And there is a well uh, enough scientific evidence to prove that there is a gut-brain access. Mm -hmm. There is a two-way communication happening, not just one way going from the gut to the brain or the brain to the gut only. And the second important aspect, Jackie, and further to what I just mentioned, is the change in the individual's gut microbiome, which is the bacteria that live in your gut. They're unique to you, and they are playing a key role in determining your metabolism. So this yeah. is the third party which comes into the mix. And uh, we are actually currently doing a study jointly with La Trobe University, which is purely uh, accessing and analyzing jointly with the microbiology yeah. department there, analyzing the changes in the gut microbiome of individuals who have had mini gastric bypass surgery. Oh, so that is something... Uh, that is something that, you know, we are really excited about and we'll be presenting it at a conference later in the year. You're a bit of an um, expert around the area of the gut. Can you tell us a little bit about your interest in that? Well, sure. Look, I don't claim myself as an expert because honestly, <laughs> the fact is, the more you learn about it, the more you, you realize that you don't know. know enough. You know, there is so much that is unknown that, uh, you know, and, and I think that is the reality that every Every new discovery is opening our eyes to so much that we don't know. And that's the beauty of it as well. So, you know, so I think in answer to your question, I think the gut plays a huge role in our not only management of weight, but our overall health, mm. our vitality our immune system, which is seated in your gut. So yes. your gut is the seat of your immune system. And when we are feeding a diet which is of processed foods, which is full of preservatives, chemicals, antibiotics, mm. as is there in, you know, lots of meat products and all of that, and hormones as well, it actually disrupts our gut microbiome. And when the gut microbiome is disturbed, it sets a degree of inflammation in the gut, which leads to a broken or an open uh, barrier between the lumen of the gut and the actual blood supply. So mm -hmm. all these undigested particles, they start to enter into the bloodstream, creating a state called dysbiosis and gut inflammation. Mm, absolutely. This, is, uh, th this concept is uh, not acceptable by every gastroenterologist, every physician, uh, because clearly there will be people who will challenge your views. But I guess my only question to people is, 
that our current model of treating patients with only pills and procedures is not working. Exactly. If you see the overall incidence and you look at the Medicare charts, actually, they present numbers every quarter. Our incidence of obesity, cancers, diabetes, Mm -hmm. and cardiovascular problems is only going up. So we are missing the point. Even with these interventions. The rate of these procedures is exploding and all these other public health programs that are targeted towards diabetes and get out and move more, but we're still seeing that increment. Absolutely. I mean, you look around in the supermarket and you walk down the street and we've just got this marketing and we've got so many external impacts that we just have to be so vigilant. And I think, I don't think we were brought up that way to be that vigilant. And I think my biggest concern is that it is going to, it is already at a point where it's unsustainable. Like Mm. Australia takes pride and I've worked in the system for over 20 years now. And I can say hand on my heart, we've got a beautiful ethical medical system. It is really well audited and we provide, and I compare this with other countries, you know, it's an amazing system, but it is reaching a point where it's unsustainable. Mm. We cannot sustain this degree of medical expenditure anymore. And I think we all need to wake up and start taking charge. I'm not saying that don't go to hospitals if you have a problem. I'm saying that you can do things right now. Mm -hmm. I often say your kitchen can change your health destiny. Oh, absolutely. Just your kitchen. So Mm -hmm. what you're putting in your mouth, the kind of processed foods, the kind of where you're buying what stuff from. That alone has the ability to start to recalibrate your metabolism in a way that you start going from a catabolic, which is which creates more inflammation, a mm. pro-inflammatory to an anti-inflammatory metabolism. Absolutely. This is just one example. Absolutely. Thank you. We could talk for hours about yes. it, and we'll just touch on your book very briefly. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the origin of that one? Yeah, so uh, my book was uh, Happy Gut, Healthy Weight, launched it in December 2018, and I think it was really an instrument of uh, providing some uh, genuine information without an intention to try and sell something to my patients who would come and see me because I have always believed in a very holistic and integrated approach to managing obesity. And I tell them that I'm not in the business of doing surgery and then more surgery and then more surgery because we need to fix the root of the problem. And we can only get to that if we understand where it is stemming from. Mm. And that's where it was, you know, a labor of love and uh, service to uh, the community and people who put their trust in me so that I could, instead of trying to repeat it every time, I said, this is a book that Mm -hmm. I've written and I've gifted it to a lot of my patients as well. But the idea is that it is something that gives them an overview as to how their stress, how their diet, which is the toxic ingredients in their foods, how the gut microbiome, which when alters, sets up a state of inflammation in the body and poor gut health, which is all linked. So it goes into the gut brain axis. Mm. And then there are certain daily practices. I'm not talking about any supplements or any, I'm not trying to sell anything in the book, but there are daily practices that an individual can start incorporating to, to start seeing the beneficial effects of this. Yeah. And that's my message. Around from a health perspective. 
Absolutely. Which is um, bringing around that multifaceted approach to change. Absolutely. Education, yes, the surgery is a tool and um, it is obviously research and it's um, showing that hormonal um, and also the mechanical changes. But if it's not supported with lifestyle, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. And I think my message in that book and through that book really is that, yes, there is a role for antibiotics. There is a role for pills. There is a role for medications. Absolutely. You know, they have been blessings of modern medicine to humanity in lengthening our lifespan. But I guess the bigger question is, it has not served us well in improving our health span because of the convenience and the lifestyle changes that we have embraced accidentally, which is not intentionally. Mm. We've got, you know, the television came, we started eating on the couch, and suddenly we found that, you know, people are becoming couch potatoes. So it's just a small example, but the point is that mindful eating which is what I talk about in the book, is really not eating in front of a screen, connecting with your food. So a small example, but that itself allows you to appreciate the taste of what you're eating, but also realizing when you're full, Mm. you've got to say thank you, and then you push it away. Whereas while you're eating in front of a screen, you are so disconnected, you just don't know when you finish the whole pizza Mm. and it's gone. And you're still hungry because you haven't recognized. <laughs> you're not actually in the moment. In. Exactly. I've also read if you're happy or you're content and you're eating, you also draw more nutrition from that food, and that comes down to the relaxation state. Correct. And what you're talking about is the relaxation response, mm. basically, which is the entire opposite of stress response. Because when you're eating in a mode of stress, it's like the body thinks you're on a diet. There is starvation, there is famine, and it tries to conserve every bit of calorie that you're taking. Mm. And you just wonder that you're eating healthy, but you're still gaining weight. So a lot of that multifaceted approach to health. That's right. Stress management is a big part of weight management, I say, because if you're stressed out and if you're not sleeping adequately, you cannot expect long. Exactly. Mm. So these are all different strategies that we talk about in the book book and in the workbook and the journal and all of that what a great combination oh thank you well thank you so much for your time today i'm sure we'll be speaking with you again in the future absolutely aaron dear thanks very much thank you thanks for listening and just before you go we would love to hear your feedback so please give us a rating and review for other interesting topics of conversation and inspiration come and drop into our facebook community at bn bariatric If you've enjoyed our podcast, we hope you will share on your Facebook or Instagram and hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode.